Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the story of a well-educated fitness fanatic who had a fancy for cigars and wore a straw boater hat. This is a man who guided Manchester United to their first league title, first FA Cup glory and much more. This is a man who remains one of only three managers to win England's top flight with Manchester United. This man is James Ernest Magnum and you're listening to United Through Time. legend of Samat Busby has cast into the shadow all those who came before him, but the great Ernest Magnell's achievements at Manchester United are enormous. Trophies, tours, stadiums and more can sum up his qualities, but what really demonstrates Magnell's importance to the club is that before he arrived, they were an ordinary second division side suffering from perennial financial anguish, and when he left, they were the two-time champions of England. Magnell was a man with an appreciation for the personality in a player, perhaps more so than his quality. Combined with the efforts of Harry Stafford, Louis Rocker and John Henry Davies, Magnell brought together some of the finest footballers in the country to form Manchester United's first great football team. And yet, he's also the man who stabilised the Manchester City Football Club and laid the foundations for a successful 1930s for United's great rivals. Magnell is one of just a very few select men to have the great respect of both of Manchester's main football clubs. In nine years at United, he transformed the side into twice league and cup champions. He took the Reds travelling across Europe to meet both the talents and the pelting stones of Budapest, Prague and Paris. He moved the club into Old Trafford and then, in 1912, walked over to the other side of the city. A man with divided loyalties, Ernest Magnell is the subject of episode 4 of United Through Time, the podcast delving into Manchester United's long and famous history. Going in chronological order, United Through Time focuses on the most important individuals at the club since it was founded as Newton Heath in 1878. I'm your host, Harry Robinson, and joining me on this episode of United Through Time will be the esteemed journalist, Paddy Barkley, who can now be heard on Love Sport Radio twice a week. Jonathan Wilson, another esteemed author, including of The Anatomy of Manchester United. Ian Gardner, the author of the biography of Harry Stafford. Gary James, the renowned author of a whole multitude of football history books and honorary research fellow at De Montfort University.
It was January 25th, 1908. The day before, Scouting for Boys had been published by Robert Bard and Powell, and the Boy Scout movement had begun. But at Manchester United's bog-like Bank Street ground in Clayton, the Reds won the charge for a league title. England international and club captain Charlie Roberts turned up immaculately dressed in his weekend suit, his pale face adding to the dullness of the colour at Clayton. Roberts was one of several injured players for a clash against Chelsea. United boss Ernest Magnell glanced at him and deduced that if he could walk, he could play. Roberts and United hobbled to a 1-0 win in front of 20,000 people. Magnell was certainly not in the mould of a modern-day football manager. He wasn't even ever called a manager at United. As you'll hear, the role of club secretary was a very different one. Five years after Magnell took over, United were league champions. In 1909, they won the cup. The next year, they would move into Old Trafford, and a second league title followed in 1911. He was born in Belmont, Bolton, in 1866. His dad, Joseph, was a joiner, and he lived with him and his mother, Anne, as well as his younger sister, Augusta. He became a well-educated man with good connections within the football game, and went to Bolton Grammar School, where he played inside right for the school football team, and later for Lancashire County. It was playing for Lancashire County, where he'd meet and become good friends with John James Bentley. Magnall became a fitness fanatic, participating in cross-country, path running, swimming, rugby, boxing and cycling, particularly the latter, as the Burnley Express commented. When mounted on the old solid tyre machine, he won a great number of prizes for long-distance road competitions and holds records for the solid tyre in Bolton District. Rides from Bolton and back to Land's End and John O'Groats are feats to be proud of and Mr Magnall has accomplished both of these. Magnall's connections with mates in the Lancashire County side and his long-held keen support of the club landed him a role as director of Bolton Wanderers. The secretary at the time was John James Bentley, arguably the most powerful man in English football at the turn of the century and a key figure in United's history. Magnall began as a football manager at Burnley. In the Manchester Football Chronicle in later years, it was written that it was J.J. Bentley and Mr. A.H. Downs who recommended Ernest Magnall to Burnley and a bonny state of affairs he found when he got there. It certainly wasn't a cushy first job for Magnall, though few secretarial jobs were in football in this era. As the Burnley Express would report in Magnall's obituary, the well-educated and well-dressed man could often be seen having left his jacket on the side of the pitch, mowing the grass the day before a game. Such was the desperation for money at Burnley, where only about £25 were brought in in gate receipts from each game, that Magnall sold out the ground to a travelling menagerie. But the elephants couldn't get the wagons into the arena and at length they abandoned the idea and went to the marketplace instead. But Mr Magnall, armed with agreement, sought his fee. Magnall demanded the fee from the boss of the travelling menagerie. He said he could only pay him in copper coins. Magnall said he could pay him in half pennies if he liked, but he had to pay him then. And so Magnall went trudging back to Burnley's ground, armed with a collection of copper coins. His efforts at Burnley would be described as a graft. He took over age 33, and the players who he was in charge of recruiting and selecting, though not really training, were sometimes of similar ages. Gary James, our first guest, explains the, the role of a football manager. It's difficult to sort of comprehend today because it's basically the same as being basically being like a well, a club secretary and director of football and a manager and a coach all in one. Now they did also have, have trainers. Um, you know, they, they did have people who would actually physically train the players. So the manager was typically in a suit. Um and Magna was certainly that type of person. But I didn't mean they weren't involved in tactics. It didn't mean they weren't involved in, in some of the day-to-day player-related activities. They, they certainly were, and Magnol definitely was. Um, 
But yeah, it's a, it's a different sort of world. But that, but for someone like Magnum, as well as all these responsibilities, you're doing all that other, you know, all that other administration. Burnley was struggling, not just financially when Magnum took over. With only a month remaining of the 1899-1900 season, relegation was inevitable. Magnol was unable to create a great escape and down into the second division they went after a 4-0 defeat away at Nottingham Forest. He signed three players in the close season and managed a third place finish in the second division the year later and then coming ninth the next year. He spent only £10 in transfer fees in four years and that was what he had to pay to bring in Jimmy Lindsay in his first summer in charge. He later sold him to Bury, the FA Cup champions, for £200. He also sold Jack Hellman for £350. Much like at Newton East in this period, Burnley were living hand-to-mouth and Magnell was trying to cope with this. He went four months without a salary himself, but he was given the support of the Mayor of Burnley, Edwin Whitehead, and Mr Sutcliffe. It was a time for Magnell that prepared him well for the challenge at Manchester United. Burnley and Newton East, separated by just 30 miles at the time, were two teams suffering in the early 1900s. At Newton East, Harry Stafford and Walter Cartwright worked tirelessly to find any sort of financial advantage. They struggled. Eventually, John Henry Davies came onto the scene. For more on that, listen to the two-part episode of Davies. But Magnus' financial struggles meant he kept a keen eye on the best emerging talent in the Lancashire area. When he got to Manchester United, this would prove to be a huge advantage. It wasn't to be long until Magnus left behind life chasing elephants and moved not too far from home. It's the 24th of April 1902. Newton Heath are about to be replaced by Manchester United. J.H. Davies has come in to rescue a side with perennial financial struggles. Davies envisaged an immediate financial relationship between the performance of United on the pitch and the attendance at Bank Street. With no cup noodle, duvet or even tractor diesel engine partner and certainly no television revenue, attendance at home games was how clubs made money. Davies was a shrewd businessman and he set out to create a benevolent circle and quickly achieved good entertaining performances on the pitch, leading to big crowds. But that meant investment in the team, and more importantly for now, ruthlessness. The two combined led to the resignation, although more of a jump before being pushed, of then-secretary James West. He was given a pub to manage by brewery owner Davies, the Union Inn, on the corner of the Princess and Canal Streets, now the hub of Manchester's gay community. West was about to become the subject of an investigation from the Football Association regarding illegal payments for players. That story is covered more in the Harry Stafford episode. And so on September the 29th, 1903, the Manchester Guardian relayed a letter from West in which he said that he was bitterly disappointed at the inability of the league team in the earlier matches to do either the club or themselves justice. I am not unmindful that my name may be associated with the failure of several of the newer members of the club to sustain the high reputations they had previously gained in first-class football, and solely with a view to relieving the executive of the club from embarrassment, I have decided to place my resignation on the secretaryship into the hands of the members of the board. West had had bad luck with injuries. Perhaps more significant was the continued presence of Harry Stafford, who, though incredibly important for United, was mates with a few of the members of the squad. The new members of the squad and the old weren't gelling as some had hoped. United needed something fresh. And so, the surprising addition of September 1903 wasn't Ernest Magnall yet, but it was J.J. Bentley, a man who'd already become incredibly important. He replaced Dr. Bishop as United's chairman. Bentley was now the president of the Football League and soon vice president of the Football Association. 
He was the only man who linked the two ruling associations and thus was the most powerful man in football. He now sat atop United's table. Association football's increasing popularity owed a great deal to the business capacity and the foresight of J.J. Bentley. And so too were United in the following years. The initials J.J.B. were known to every follower of the game. He'd been chairman, director, player, referee, president and was once the editor of The Athletic News. So Bentley was United's new chairman. The owner John Henry Davies was frustrated with the money spent by Western Stafford early on. Players had flopped like Bunts and Lappin and they were shown the door. West went in late September and in came Ernest Magnell. Now this has been seen as a strange appointment by some. Not because he ran the footballing world like Bentley, but the opposite. Magnell had just led Burnley to finish bottom of the Football League. They'd been forced to apply for re-election at the end of the 1902-03 season. But instead, he left in October 1903 to join Manchester United, Burnley's second division rivals. But more than that, a team looking to propel themselves into one of the most successful clubs in the country. Why did United choose Magnell? There's been some misconceptions about this question. He was a mate of new chairman J.J. Bentley's and that helped. And so too did the recommendations of some of John Henry Davies's friends elsewhere in the footballing world. But the truth is that Magnell had proved himself at Burnley in incredibly tough situations. He's, he's got a bit of a pedigree because he, you know, he's, he was recognised as a, a, a proper sort of football administrator because the, the managers were a bit different in those days. They were responsible for all the administration of the club as well, um, you know, ticket sales and building stands and all those sort of things, as well as you know, picking the team and buying the players. And so Magnol came in with his reputation, really. You only need to look at the newspapers of the time to understand Magnol's qualities. He was extraordinarily well regarded at Burnley, earning the kind of reputation of a saviour that Harry Stafford enjoyed at United. Magnol rescued Burnley from the pits of financial mismanagement and misfortune. Councillor Whitehead, the chairman of the club, bid Magnol farewell by saying that Burnley FC was losing a true and valued servant. Sporting Life wrote that Mr Magnell has done wonders at Burnley, having pulled the club round from bankruptcy to a sound financial position as league clubs go. What is Burnley's loss is Manchester United's gain. The Burnley Express carried a detailed report on Magnell's departure. The ex-secretary entertained directors and players and a few friends to the number of about 30 to dinner at Cronkshaw's Hotel. Most of the speakers referred in eulogistic terms to Mr Magnell were reminiscent of former days. No one knew more than Mr Magnell the troublesome times clubs had passed through and there was perhaps not another football secretary in England or Scotland who would have done what he had done for Burnley. Councillor McFarlane drew attention to what he regarded as a lack of support by tradesmen who benefited by thousands of people coming into the town which they could not do without spending something. Mr Summersgill seconded the vote of thanks which was heartily accorded and the proceedings terminated with the singing of the national anthem. So, riding the semi-breves and minims of God Save the King, Ernest Magno arrived at Manchester United to their Bank Street ground. Sporting Life explained, He will have no need to exercise such strict economy at Clayton, Manchester. If Mr Magno can only turn the costly Manchester United team into a winning side, he will indeed be a valuable acquisition. A valuable acquisition he was, but Magno's first game at United was a 4-0 defeat away at Woolwich Arsenal. There were debuts for Grassham and Blackstock. The next week, six foot three inch Harry Modger made his first start in goal as United thrashed Barnsley by four goals at Bank Street. Modger soon dropped out of the team again as regular custodian and John Sutcliffe returned from playing for the Football League 11. United drew to Bolton, then lost 2-0 to Preston. 
There may have been no Twitter, but fans could still complain. Three letters were published by the editor of the Manchester Evening News questioning the manager's team selection. Is it not possible the present custodian, like most celebrated football players, has had his day? This was apparently the view of the bulk of the supporters club and a trial might be made of another. The reserve custodian has been tried and his play was such that it seems strange the management has not recognised him, a player worthy of the first team. Another wrote in more detailed fashion, apologising to the editor for intruding upon your valuable space to say a few words, I'll read the composition of the Manchester United team. This season ticket holder pleaded for Modger to start and the final letter came from Louis Rocker, aged 18, from Oldham Road, Manchester. He bemoaned the constant playing of Sutcliffe in the Manchester United goal. Rocker described the goalkeeping situation as a subject which is causing no little uneasiness among the club's supporters. This is a thing that could be easily remedied, that is, by playing Modger of the reserves, who has been doing splendid service lately. He's saved about nine penalties this season, and that out of nine. At six foot three inch, Modger was a giant compared to the average male of the time at five foot six or seven, and Louis Rocker, a journalist who had agreed with him. The November piece in the Manchester Courier praised this tall young man's performances with the reserves as deserving of trial with the senior eleven. It wasn't until Boxing Day 1903 that Modger would get a rare first team appearance amid all this attention. Even then, Sutcliffe was chosen for the all-important Christmas Day fixture, but on March 28th, the same Sutcliffe was placed on the transfer list. United beat Stockport 3-0 and Modger became the number one. They won five in a row, Modger didn't concede for four consecutive away games and would only lose once before the season ended with a third place finish. Preston became second division champions, Woolwich Arsenal finished second, one point ahead of United. It had been an interesting first few months in charge for Magnell. His team was in its infancy. Modger would be the goalkeeper, or custodian, to take United to League and Cup glory in the coming years. And in the final league match, United beat Leicester 5-2 at Bank Street. Only 7,000 fans watched on as Modger, Bonthron, Hayes, Downey, Griffiths, Robertson, Schofield, Pegg, Robertson, Arxton and Hartwell played. Already, by the end of the season after, only two of that starting eleven remained. By the end of the 1906 season, none of these players except Harry Modger remained. Magnell was very far from his great United team, and so perhaps it's lucky that he wasn't promoted with one point extra over Woolwich Arsenal. United needed time. The players who were at United at the time were becoming accustomed to Magnell's training and management style. The Bolton-born man focused on a solid defence rather than a fluid attack. His philosophy was that you let in fewer than you score, you win the game. It was a phrase he'd often use. He was a manager who appreciated the personality of his players in combination with the talent and hard work. And in training, things were haphazard and random. Even at this early stage, before United had star players, training was largely conducted by the senior players. This became even more common when Billy Meredith and Charlie Roberts joined. Magnell preached a gospel of physical fitness and team spirit. Ian Gardiner explains. He believed in the, the mumbo-jumbo ball starvation. That if players were deprived of a football during the week, they would be all the more uh, hungry for it come Saturday afternoon. It was a ridiculous concept. For the first great United team, perhaps this might be seen as strained foundations. It certainly doesn't fit in with this idea of a mythical, united way that Sir Matt Busby founded. Ahead of an FA Cup tie in his first season, Magnell took his squad to a training base at Anstall, near Lytham St Anne's. Magnell liked to get the team away from the grime and stench of clay. He thought the bracing sea air was good and believed in the therapeutic qualities of salt water. He also happened to be shagging a Blackpool last name, Eliza Robson. Just because they focused on fitness and Magnell built upon a solid defence first, 
doesn't mean that they couldn't produce good football. It's just that the defence had to come first, and it did. The introduction of Harry Modger was soon to be outdone by the introduction of another great United man, Charlie Roberts. It was in Magnall's first season that he combined efforts with Harry Stafford, John Henry Davies, JJ Bentley and a couple of others at Manchester United to bring one of English football's most sought-after players to a second division club. Roberts was a highly coveted Grimsby centre-half, much to the frustration of the ever-traditional stuck-in-the-past football association, he was the first player to wear short shorts. As the chairman of the Football League and not just Manchester United, JJ Bentley travelled down as a guest of the Manchester City party for the 1904 FA Cup final which they were playing in. Unbeknownst to them, Bentley wasn't going simply to watch the Cup final. He'd booked an appointment at the plush Hoban restaurant with one Mr Joseph Bellows, chairman of Grimsby Town. This was a coordinated approach from Bentley and Harry Stafford to sign Roberts on the back of a request from Magnell. JH Davies provided the money. While Bentley dined with Joseph Bellows, Harry Stafford was on the end of a telephone line with Charlie Roberts next to him. As Bentley and Bellows dined in the south, Stafford and Roberts spoke in the north and a deal was done for £600. The newspapers at the time reported about 500 so it's possible the administrators of the deal earned about £100 between them. Roberts made his debut for United against Burton United in a 2-0 home win. That was on April 23rd, the same day that Manchester City became FA Cup champions for the first time. According to the Manchester Courier, special arrangements were made so that updates from the cup final at the Crystal Palace sports ground could be given to the United fans at Clayton. But while City enjoyed great success down in London, United took advantage of the distraction and signed Roberts to start a shift in power. It was a huge signing. Roberts was only 20 at the time. He had a reputation, as was written in the Athletic News, as the best halfback in the second division. There were things like the maximum wage in place, so couldn't tempt a player to come and play with, for you just because you were Manchester United then, because obviously United didn't have the money to pay players because they weren't allowed to, and they didn't have the reputation. So, so there had to be a reason to go to to, to Manchester United then, and that part of that reason was Ernest Manuel. He had to persuade people to come to to, to Manchester United because of the vision that he had because of where he wanted that club to be. On his debut, the Athletic News said, Roberts was almost the best man on the field. His presence certainly strengthened the line. He'd only go on to build from there because if Modger was the first piece of the jigsaw for Magnell, Roberts was a very important second. So it was kind of, he got his cantona, if you like. The praise for the defender would quickly come as he helped United to success. In later years, this would be written about Charlie Roberts by Scottish international Peter McWilliam. Roberts is the greatest centre-half in the United Kingdom. In intelligence, physique and height, he has been well endowed by nature. He stands fully six feet and weighs over 13 stone. He is the master key, the pivot of Manchester United's team. He shines equally in offensive as in defensive tactics and he is a source of trouble to goalkeepers as well as centre-forwards. A finer exhibition I have never seen from any half-back. His judgement was supreme and there was no player on the field who could either get the ball under control so quickly or beat an opponent with such ease. So Charlie Roberts is the one that is that first true great United hero, I would, I would say. This was an era where footballers with ideas could quickly break traditions. There was plenty to be broken. 
Roberts was one of the first footballers to wear short shorts, but also to free himself of the constraints of the halfway line, moving between both halves and having an impact on both. You see him on the street and you are told it is a famous Roberts. You're disappointed. He doesn't wear the healthy, lusty, muscular habit of the average ball manipulator. You would hint that he was delicate. His very sparseness puts activity out of your mind, and a lack of beams suggests a restful holiday trip as the best means of rescuing him from permanent illness. But you see him on the field. There you are presented with a bottled essence of agility, the personification of unending activity and a veritable spring-heeled jack. Acrobatics would appear to have been the particular study of this slim youth, and we imagine that, should football fail him, he might readily acquire fame on the musical stage as an expert in leg mania. In the Western Daily Press at the start of June, one roving reporter had recently been at the meeting of Football League representatives. He insisted that the profits at the meeting had settled that Manchester United would be the two teams to earn promotion in the 1904-05 season. After the signing of Roberts and having finished third the year before, they had reason to predict such a thing. The pressure was on Furness Magnell. He got Harry Stafford to work over the summer and on July 15th brought in William Craner from Nelson, regarded as one of the smartest outside lefts in the Lancashire Leagues. Other fans feud on with some distaste, saying at the annual meeting that they must remember that Manchester United had almost unlimited financial resources with which to attain their object. For a modern day audience, in a sense, you could sort of compare it to um, the, the Manchester City takeover in 2008. Meanwhile, Small Heath were debating about a name change to Birmingham City, following the examples of Ardwick, who became Manchester City, and Newton Heath, becoming Manchester United. One newspaper urged Woolwich Arsenal to reconsider their name and think about London City. In the same summer, United signed a backup goalkeeper in James Peacock, a member of the Wigan water polo team who he helped to the English Water Polo Championship in 1902. Five days ahead of Manchester United's first game of the season, in early September, the Athletic News ran a small profile on the club, hailing the ownership and investment of John Henry Davies, the wide support in the industrial city of Manchester and centre-half Charlie Roberts. United possess a defence certainly not surpassed in the second division and a forward line which just requires judicious placing to bring it to the level of the defence. Fred Bacon again the trainer and assisted by Jay Nuttall, formerly of Bolton Wanderers. The mention of these two trainers demonstrates how Magnall's role was not the idea we have of a football manager or head coach today. He recruited, administrated, oversaw and encouraged. His training was mainly fitness and others helped in selection and all matters, even if he had the final say. Coaching, obviously, in those days was much less. You wouldn't get a tracksuit manager. You know, you wouldn't get a manager in a tracksuit. So coaching, hands-on coaching, was a, a much smaller part of the game. And therefore, player selection was key. And his player selection was unbelievable. Fred Bacon, a former athletics coach, was brought in by Harry Stafford, and he trained United's players most of the time if they didn't do it themselves. The Manchester Courier praised the arrival of the Scottish Jack Peddy, a forward from Glasgow, described as a sterling player who would bring much-needed improvement to the forward line. Just before the season got started, United held a late practice match to raise funds for a nearby lifeguard charity. It was a common event under the ownership of J.H. Davies, who bought into the idea of helping the nearby community. Up in Edinburgh, it was reported that a more reliable lot of players than last season are expected to don the Manchester United colours. That was certainly true. 
United went unbeaten from September 24th, 1904 to January 21st, 1905. The 14 consecutive wins included in that period remains a club record. On October 22nd, a famous back line played together for the first time. Duckworth, Roberts and Bell shortened, and affectionately so, to Duck Rebel. They won 29 out of their first 34 matches playing together. Bell and Roberts were constants of the side from this point onwards, although it took Dick Duckworth a little while longer to make sure he was in the first team consistently. In February 1905, Roberts was called up to the England side and became the first United player to represent the English national team. He was only the third player from the second division to receive a call-up ever and was the youngest centre-half since 1885. He missed four United matches while away with his country at the British Championships and in those four games they dropped three crucial points. The poor spell while Roberts was up at Ayrson Park playing for England left United just off promotion. It was a gutting season. Despite 5-0 and 6-0 wins against Burton United and Doncaster Rovers late on in the season, dropping five points from 12, partly down to a 4-0 trouncing at Anfield in Easter, left United miserable again. Eventually, Magnell's team finished five points behind champions Liverpool and three points behind runners-up Bolton. Remember, they dropped three while Roberts was away. Across the city, Manchester City were chasing their first title in a two-horse race with Aston Villa, the team of the establishment, the FA's darling boys. City and United, for that matter, were perceived as northern upstarts, teams that really shouldn't compete at the same level as teams like Aston Villa. When City went to Villa for a key clash in the title race, stocky Scottish forward Sandy Turnbull was involved in a clash with Villa captain Alec Leake. Well, Sandy Turnbull, at this game against Aston Villa, was dragged into the, the, the Aston Villa dressing room, beaten up and thrown out, and that was never investigated. You know, this was, it came out with cuts and bruises and it was never investigated. It was a stain upon football and both clubs. Welsh superstar Billy Meredith was accused of offering a bribe to Leek and Turnbull of putting two fingers up at the opposition. The fact that Turnbull had been badly beaten didn't seem to affect the FA's charges in relation to the incident. Meredith would soon be in trouble, but City were now in the FA's focus and it wouldn't end well for them. But for United, things were on the up. Not quite yet though. At the end of the season, the Football League expanded each division from 18 teams to 20. United thought they might be one of the lucky two to receive automatic promotion to the first division. They had finished third after all. They'd been challenging for promotion for a couple of years as well, so quite why they weren't was a little bit of a mystery. There's a few theories, none of them proven. Some thought that City had sent out a message not to vote for their neighbours to be promoted, while others were certainly wary and suspicious of the involvement of JJ Bentley at United. Another possible reason was that the rest of the second division wanted to keep United in the league because, even before a title or a cup win, United drew big crowds because of the money they'd spent, their ambition and reputation. Some reporters said that everyone knew United would go up soon anyway, so there was no point giving them an automatic promotion. Despite missing out, Magnall made some more astute signings. Jack Picken, a Scottish forward he had worked with at Burnley, and Charlie Sagar, an England international who had scored 24 goals in 33 games for United over a year and a half. In the summer of 1905, despite promotion not having been achieved yet, Magnall's salary rose to £5 a week, the equivalent of about twenty-eight grand a year in today's money. In early August, Manchester City forward Sandy Turnbull was banned by the FA for his involvement with Aston Villa captain Alec Leake earlier that year. Leek and Villa went disgracefully unpunished. 
The FA then stunned the footballing world with the announcement that Billy Meredith had been banned until April 1906 for allegedly offering Alec Leake a bribe. Meredith initially said he was innocent. Meredith was furious, writing, I'm entirely innocent and I'm suffering for others. Such an allegation as that of bribery is preposterous. The Welsh ringer was an infamous penny pincher. Leake said he thought Meredith had been joking. Meredith denied he had offered a bribe in any sort of way. He received a letter from Tom Maley. City's manager showed little support at all, only offering the club's sincere and heartfelt sympathy. The path across town was being laid. Over in Clayton, Charlie Roberts had been made captain of Manchester United. He kept 17 clean sheets in the 1905-06 season, a defensive record which lasted for decades, but his nickname was the Ghost in the Boots because he was so pale. Percy Young later wrote that the Duck Rebel trio comprised one of the immortal formations of football history. It is still recorded in Manchester with a reverence akin to that accorded in other spheres to Brodsky, Fuchs and Richter. What Meredith was to City, Stanley Matthews was to be to Stoke and Blackpool and Billy Wright to Wolves, Charlie Roberts was to Manchester United, even if he used to spend his summers on a Grimsby trawler fishing in Icelandic waters. United finished second in 1906 and were finally promoted. 15,000 crammed into Bank Street for a climatic 6-0 win against Burton United who surrendered two points and half a dozen goals with meekness befitting their inferiority. Victors attended with brass bands, red and white fire balloons were sent up from the pavilion, the top story of which was gay with flowers and bunting. The scene was enhanced by what appears to have been an incredibly unlikely April snowstorm. The Manchester Guardian finally got to use the line, Our two teams are now for the first time in football history, both in the first division. It had been a long time coming. This was when Davies was just getting worried about his investment. He'd pumped money in since 1903, and three years later, the most well-endowed team in the second division was still just that, a second-tier side. How did United finally achieve promotion? Well, Dick Duckworth coming into the back line alongside Roberts and Bell was key. That started about a third of the way through the season, but fans were impatient in this season, with one reporter writing that the Clayton crowd are more ready to jeer and criticise a player than to give him encouragement. There was a stunning 5-1 cup win against Villa. 45,000 worked Clayton for it and that helped ease any pain that Davies was feeling, the club taking in more than £1,400 from gate receipts, with thousands more left outside the ground. It was the first sign that United needed to move stadium and began the road towards a great replacement for Clayton, Old Trafford. In April, Davies showed his confidence in Magnol and United by signing George Wall, a quality winger who Dick Duckworth had struggled to keep quiet while Wall played for Barnsley. Magnol had made another smart signing and it wasn't the only time he'd picked out a player after watching his United team compete against them. You can have all the money in the world, you can all have the greatest players in the world but you need that manager to actually turn them into a true team. And obviously Magnol did that. By this point, United had been knocked out of the FA Cup by Arsenal. And by the end of the march, they were third behind Chelsea. The Reds drew to the Blues in front of at least 60,000 people. And a few days later, Mount Vesuvius erupted in the midst of the Italian authorities preparing to host the 1908 Summer Olympics. Funds designated for the Games had to be diverted to help recover Naples. And so a new host for the Olympics was found. London. London. 
wins against Burnley, Leeds United and Lincoln City secured promotion before a celebratory game against Burton United on April the 28th. Four of those who played in that final triumphant game would start in the FA Cup final in 1909, three years later. The team still had some way in its development towards greatness. This was a season with plenty of stories and developments. Experienced winger Alf Schofield, who had played 179 times for United over seven years, left the club. Magna was changing things up still. Schofield occasionally played in the Lancashire Cricket League too. The first signs of football hooligans began to emerge in this period. Many clubs had been started to give men something to do at the weekend, often by churches, in order to keep them out of trouble. That wasn't always the case. A February game at Bradford brought the first hooligans. United had battered Bradford at home in the physical sense as well as by a 5-1 scoreline. They knew they needed to win at Valley Parade and so Bob Bonthron tackled hard and unfairly and he admitted as much. After the game, Bonthron and the referee struggled to get off the pitch, leaving the stadium as if under attack. The Bradford players tried to help and protect him but someone aimed a direct blow at Bonthron. Magnol, meanwhile, sat in his cab while it was attacked by stone throwers. Bonthron eventually escaped, left covered in mud from head to toe and with bruises all over. In more civilised settings, the general election was coming up and the increasing importance of football in English society was reflected as many MPs made their way to Clayton and Bank Street for a photo opportunity. Prime Minister Arthur Balfour made a sickly effort at setting the ball rolling for the second half of one of United's games and was pictured embarrassingly in the newspaper the next day. He lost the election and his own seat in Manchester East. It's possible a certain Winston Churchill turned up at Clayton one day as well. Forgetting Balfour's woes, United had been promoted. They brought in a couple more players. Alex Menzies was a Scottish striker, but he, like Arthur Young, Frank Buckley, William Yates and Bill Berry, didn't offer enough to United. More importantly, for now 36-year-old Ernest Magnell, he got married in the summer. On July the 12th, 1906, vicar Fred Powell oversaw the marriage of Magnell to Eliza Hobson, the 29-year-old spinster and daughter of an estate agent. Hobson, as Ian Gardiner said, was the reason Magnell loved taking his team to train at St Anne's by the sea so much. The two were joined in holy matrimony at Parish Church, South Shore, Blackpool. And by way of wedding gifts, uh, John Henry Davis gave him a pound a week pay rise and, and Billy Meredith, the, the best right winger on earth. We'll get to that shortly. Back at United, the Reds started life in the first division in a distinctly average manner. After 21 games, they had only 18 points. They'd lost nine times and only won six games. The one positive of the first half of the season was Dick Duckworth's proper entrance into the United side. He'd played with Robertson Bell before, as I've said, but was still reserved to Alec Downey. But one day, Downey couldn't play, citing a bad throat, and he never regained his place. Duckworth found his home at right half-back. It was a 3-0 defeat to Manchester City that saw Duckworth properly take his first-team role. After that, he played the next 22 consecutive matches and would start in the FA Cup final a couple of years later. Now a 3-0 defeat to rival City was a poor result, an embarrassing one. United never showed up for it. This was a City side, remember, whose best players had been suspended until 1907 and the majority of whose directors had been banned for life from the game. But it was those star players, or former star players I should say, that were the real story of December the 1st, 1906, not City's three-goal win. The centre of the storm that whipped round football's fringes for much of 1905 and 1906 was Billy Meredith. 
Furious at allegations of bribery, Meredith soon went on the offensive after his own club, City, who offered him no support. They couldn't pay his wages because of FA rules. I found them shilly-shallying and put him off until I got tired, Meredith said. But still, he turned up regularly to the club and argued with officials. The FA auditor, Tom Hindle, saw him doing so and told City Secretary Tom Maley he had to report Meredith or face City's complete evisceration. So Maley did so. Meredith became even more furious and began to speak out in the press. He had plenty of friends. He claimed in early June 1906 that he had offered the bribe to Aston Villa captain Alec Leak, but that Tom Maley, City's manager, had instructed him to do so. He'd previously denied doing this at all, but he knew that was futile now. City knew people in the press too though, and the Athletic News was now owned by one of City's investors, Edward Halton. He went on the offensive claiming that Meredith had committed an offence which ought to have ended his football career and had dragged everyone else into the same mess. This incredible spat played out in the football media. It's quite difficult to imagine such a scenario now. There is no alternative. There is no comparison to be made. But meanwhile, United were agreeing a deal with Billy Meredith to bring him across the city. He produced an agreement between him and City, stating that he'd be entitled to a benefit match and a minimum sum of £600 from it. Because of that, City let him leave the club for free in recompense. The FA wanted a fee to change hands, but Meredith, ever the maverick, refused. The City club put a transfer of £600 on my head, he said, and United were prepared to pay it, but I refused to let them pay a half penny. I had cost no fee and I was determined that I would have no fee placed on my head. I was prepared to fight the matter. The City Club were not. I was given a free transfer and as a result I got £500 from a gentleman to sign for Manchester United and he also paid the £100 fine to the FA. A typically genius money-making move from Meredith who made a tidy profit out of the whole business in the end. And so, back to December the 1st, the start of Advent and United's 3-0 drubbing at the hands of City at Main Road. When City then offered out their suspended players to the rest of the footballing world in an auction, other clubs were in first shock. Meredith had already signed for United, and the combination of Stafford, Magnall, Rocker and others, as well as the money of John Henry Davies, meant they'd also scooped up Sandy Turnbull and Herbert Burgess, as well as Jimmy Bannister. The truth is that City and United did a deal before the auctions took place. And United got Meredith and Turnbull. Burgess, known as the Mighty Atom, was wanted by Celtic and Everton. Rumours circulated in Scotland that he'd joined Celtic for £1,000, but instead he joined United for 750 The Glaswegians were furious. Everton were even more so and complained to the Football League, who knocked back their frustrations, perhaps due to the influence of JJ Bentley. But the Daily Dispatch was pleased. They, like many in Manchester, felt that it is fitting that the star players should move from City to Clayton to keep their talent inside Manchester's ever-growing boundaries. City fans desperately wanted Meredith and Turnbull and, and some of the other big stars to stay in Manchester. The season turned round. As said before, United had been doing poorly in the first division. It was only their first season after all. They'd gone five games without a win in December, including that defeat to City but the arrival of the four ex-Blues turned things around. They made their debuts, all four of them, in a New Year's Day match against Aston Villa. It was redemption for Meredith and Turnbull. 40,000 crammed into Bank Street, and new signing Sandy Turnbull scored the goal, assisted by Billy Meredith. Turnbull was a fantastic player. He would sadly die in the First World War, but was a United great before then. A stocky striker, not tall, but wide and heavy, he headed well and moved well in the box. 
It was a great day of Manchester Association football. When Roberts led the team with its famous recruits onto the field, there was a scene of wonderful enthusiasm. A greater roar of cheering has probably never sounded over a football ground. Snow decked the sides of United's Bank Street ground, and the Manchester Guardian described the crowd as A sea under a hurricane. One saw nothing but an amazing tumult of waving arms and handkerchiefs. When Meredith and, and, and Turnbull arrived, suddenly United seemed to be sort of more or less unstoppable. And that obviously carries then on then into 1907-08. United won 11 of the next 17 games and lost only four times. They ended the season finishing eighth, but went out of the FA Cup to Portsmouth. It was the club's highest ever finish, of course, and they were only nine points behind champions Newcastle. The average crowd as well, partly thanks to the signings from City, was up by almost 7,000 from the previous year. As the summer of 1907 came round, Magnol had now built the first great United team. They weren't great yet, of course, for they hadn't won anything, but Magnol always placed defensive foundations at the very top of his list of priorities, and he had crafted that defence for four years now. Harry Modger in goal, he was the first, then Charlie Roberts, then Dick Duckworth and Alec Bell in front of Modger. He then added the attacking talent and flair of City's very best players and still had the excellent George Wall, Jimmy Turnbull and the rotating options of Dick Holden, George Stacey, Alec Downey and Herbert Broomfield. In the Manchester Evening News, Harry Renshaw wrote, United have never in their history opened a season with so strong a playing combination as they have at the present time. Magnol didn't just sign players, but moved others on at the right time. Vince Hayes and Charlie Sagar left in that summer after struggling for fitness. Sandy Robertson left too, and so did Arxton, Beddo and Schofield. So the 1907-08 season got underway at the start of September. Once again, United had played a practice match just before the start of the season, against the club's reserves. This was on August the 24th, and afterwards, they headed to John Henry Davies's mansion at Mosley Hall. A spread of food was put on, and the club had a feeling of togetherness. This was the achievement of Magnol and Davies. The dressing room had become a lively one. Magnol was not involved in that. He left the players to themselves for much of the time, particularly after the arrival of Meredith and Turnbull, two players of the highest quality. That pairing and Charlie Roberts bore the main responsibility for genuine training, while Magno insisted on a serious amount of fitness work and selected the team. Billy Meredith claimed they worked out their own ploys during hot pot suppers they attended at the Welshman's home. It was only a few years previous that United's players had changed in Father Bird's pub across the road. Now Meredith and Turnbull, two of the best players in the country, but also a pair of jokesters, pranksters, were playing their tricks in United's renovated facilities. They cut teammates' socks up, tied them to chairs, released livestock into bedrooms, and Meredith would often steal belongings, plant them in Sandy Turnbull's pockets, and watch the ensuing argument unfold in a fit of laughter. (laughs) United opened the season with a 4-1 win against Aston Villa, away from home. The papers described it as One of the best performances since the club was founded. Five days later, Sandy Turnbull grabbed a hat-trick against Liverpool. It was the first of four as a red for him. United won 4-0 in front of 24,000 people at Bank Street, with George Wall grabbing the other goal from the wing. Jimmy Turnbull, who had the nickname Trunky and wasn't related to Sandy, made his debut before the end of September in a 4-1 win at Chelsea. Meredith scored twice this time. It was a rampant start to the season. United scored 48 goals in their first 14 games, a rate of more than three per game. Turnbull scored 20 goals in those 14 fixtures too, The highlight was a 6-1 demolition of Newcastle. The reigning champions who appeared set to be knocked off their perch in emphatic fashion. The Magpies had never conceded six goals at St James's Park, but United were breaking records all over the place. 
This was in a week where they also thrashed Blackburn Rovers 5-1, Sandy Turnbull getting another hat-trick and his namesake Jimmy Turnbull scoring twice. This was a team at the very top of their game and enjoying themselves. Magnol was merely a facilitator of enjoyment, talent and fitness, his hard work in the previous years paying off. He didn't have to intervene too much. United's players were mates. They lived close enough to each other and Meredith's house, as we've said, would act as the meeting point for this band of England's finest footballers. United were sprinting towards the title, scoring four against Burnley and Everton and then they did the same against Woolwich Arsenal as well, Sandy Turnbull getting all four. But United then suffered defeat for the first time since September. It was now the end of November and they ain't drawn at all in that period either. They bounced back from defeat quickly, winning five of the next seven and drawing the other two. And at the close of play on New Year's Day, United sat 10 points clear at the top of Division 1. It was only two points for a win as well. They'd scored more, conceded fewer than anyone else in England. When United had gone to Bury on Christmas Day and won 2-1, it was obvious who the 45,000 people had come to see. The Courier reported, The Manchester United team is a drawing power no matter where it plays, and it was only to be expected that there would be a great crowd at Gig Lane to see the champion team of the year. The people came from all sides of Bury, and the United supporters assembled in strong force. Christmas Day, and the team were already being described as the champion team of the year. In the cup, a double from George Wall secured a 3-1 win against Blackpool, and then an early Turnbull goal put United through against Chelsea. Both players scored again to see off Aston Villa, but in early March, Fulham put an end to any hopes of a double. Though the cup wins had been good, United had slowed down. The first half of the season had been a procession, but after the turn of the year, the team was beginning to lose its verve and fluency. Perhaps it was the influence of the Players' Union, run by Meredith and Roberts, presidented by Davies and hosted at Harry Stafford's Imperial Hotel. It wasn't meant to be a distraction, but it could have been. Or perhaps the team had been so good at the start of the season that a drop-off was inevitable. On New Year's Day, United had 36 points from 21 matches. They only achieved 16 from their final 17 games. United's lead at the top of the table initially dropped to 7 points, though they had two games in hand. A 1-0 defeat to Woolwich Arsenal was followed by the second highest scoring game in United history, a 7-4 loss to Liverpool at Anfield. It was a remarkable game where United scored all four of their goals in the second half, having trailed by four at half-time. To boost the side, Davies invested again, signing Harold House from Southend, a team a couple of divisions lower. He made his debut against Sheffield Wednesday, scoring after one minute. United won 4-1, and it was the first of 56 goals for United from House. It was now April. United drew with Bristol City, beat Everton away from home, and because of results elsewhere, were pretty much crowned champions. But to sum up the second half of the campaign, United confirmed their title with an extraordinary 1-0 loss to Notts County, a side battling relegation. City lost 3-1 at Forest, the Wednesday were beaten by Bolton, and United were crowned champions without winning another game. In fact, they'd only win one of their last six. They spent most of 1908 walking backwards, but by the end of April, they had a crown on their heads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The Notts County game was particularly odd. In the build-up to the game, United had just announced a move to Old Trafford, where a new state-of-the-art stadium would be built. Before kickoff, fans discussed the pros and cons of the move, as did the rest of the sporting world. Then United played poorly in the first half, had a penalty in the second, but regular taker Sandy Turnbull refused to take it, citing an injured ankle. After much wasted time, the ever-reliable George Wall dispatched it wide of the post. The county players congratulated him as United's fans booed. Fans were left furious by the end of the game, despite their side having just been made champions. An inquiry was needed, but none came about. It is anything but a happy family at Clayton now, one reporter mused. Eventually, smiles were put back on faces. United were, after all, champions and were properly given their crown after a 2-1 win against Preston. Thousands of fans descended onto the pitch at Bank Street and it was a season to be proud of, despite inconspicuous endings. Sandy Turnbull netted 25 goals in 30 games, a record that wouldn't be bettered until 1947. Meredith missed only one league game. United finished nine points clear and were the first Manchester team to bring the title to Cottonopolis. The, the, the fact is that he must be talked about henceforth alongside Busby and, you know, obviously because the, he didn't have the same longevity or, or trophy hall, you know, maybe as third, but definitely the idea that United have had two great managers probably needs to be challenged because it probably should be three. Next time on United Through Time, part two of Ernest Magno, including becoming the first British club to tour to Europe, FA Cup glory at the Crystal Palace ground, moving to Old Trafford, the Players' Union, the start of decline, and Magnol's trip across Manchester to City. Thanks for listening. Magnol's ambition pushed the club into the move to, to Stratford. The shock that that would be today, and that's what happened then. This is exactly how it was. Magnol had achieved that success at United, but said, I'm going to sit there. They've got, big, they, they've got bigger support. And you just wouldn't, you just couldn't comprehend that. Here was a man who built a stadium, and
and grow up those first successes. This episode of United Through Time was researched, written, hosted and produced by me, Harry Robinson. My thanks go out to my guests, Paddy Barkley, Ian Gardner, Gary James and Jonathan Wilson, not just for the clips that you have heard, but the information that they have lent me in my research. If you're interested in more about this era, listen to part two, but also read Ian Gardner's biography of Harry Stafford and Gary James's upcoming book, The Emergence of Football in Manchester. See you next time. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 